Okay, so I was born into this breed. My parents had them before I was born, not in any sort of show fashion. They had just companion dogs. And then the year I was born was the year they got their first show dog, even though it wasn't really purchased with that intent. It, you know, they got started into it right around, you know, right as the year I was born. So mm. I'm involved with bulldogs in a multiple of ways. As a breeder, I started showing as a young girl in junior handling. And then I started breeding in my early teens. I was not really social in school. I just liked being around my dog. Yeah. And as a breeder, I've bred close to 50 homebred AKC champions, plus dozens more not really bred by me. And more recently, um, a couple of my dogs have landed with an outstanding performance trainer. And um, one of them is, he, if he's not the most, he's among the most titled performance bulldog in history. He has titles in scent work and um, workhorse ability and his working towards his um, agility championship, barn hunt, um, obedience. She just does everything with him and he just follows right along. He's a scent master. Mm-hmm. And not only is he a scent master in some of the competitions he competed in, he didn't just get qualifying scores. He would win the competitions and it would be like first place bulldog, second place border collie, third place golden retriever. So he was really, really good at that. And she was working with some tracking there. Um, as a judge, I've been judging since 1994. I do judge Frenchies and breed those two. Um, I've judged the Bulldog Club of America National three times. I've judged championship shows in England three times, plus in 17 other countries throughout Europe, North, Central, and South America. As a club member, I'm vice president of the World Bulldog Club Federation, um, which is based in Europe generally, although BCA is a member. I'm president of the Bulldog Club of Philadelphia, as well as the AKC delegate for that club. I'm counselor for the BCA Division Four. I'm a board member of Oklahoma City Bulldog Club and Texoma Bulldog Club. I'm currently the head of BCA Judges Education, and I'm very active in the BCA Health and Education Committees. Well, my parents obviously had a, a lot to do with, with that, but I did have uh, my own methodology of of exploring things Mm -hmm. um you know just constantly being an eavesdropper is Mm kind of how I was as a kid is you know if I see somebody that looked like they were successful I just tried to gravitate towards them I used to be before the internet I was an active pen pal you know when our dog magazine would come out and I would see a breeder doing well with dogs I admired I'd sit down and write them letters and mail them and hope to get a response back um handlers Breeders, um, not all from bulldogs, just other breeds. Mm-hmm. And I have probably one of the most extensive bulldog libraries that are around. And I, I really kind of count that as maybe my most influential mentor because so many, you know, I just, I just gobble up all the reading that I can. So mm-hmm. that's, I have to count that in amongst the actual teachers. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've been active in the BCA Health Committee since, gosh, I can't remember how long it's been, easily over 30 years. So just by virtue of that, I feel even stronger about health testing than if I was just a less um, visible breeder, which I probably would still do it. Even when I was a kid, I was very geared into the whole health testing thing. And um, just as a kind of a, a of an aside, I grew up in New Jersey, which if you know anything about New Jersey, it's a very hot and humid state. Mm-hmm. And um, we didn't have air conditioning in my house. Mm-hmm. And so my bulldogs grew up in hot, humid New Jersey with no air conditioning. So, you know, breathing issues just weren't anything that we ever really dealt with. And, you know, you'd go to the shows and, and back in the, the 70s, um, the dogs were, were breeding heavier and harder than they certainly they do now. And, you know, I used to feel sorry for the dogs and I'd see them like that. Cause my dogs really didn't go through that because they just didn't. And I remember one time we had, we had a young stud dog and somebody called me about him and were asking just general questions. And when they asked me about his health, I'd be like, he's great. And their reaction was almost an accusatory. You must be lying because how can a bulldog be that healthy? And um, that's when I started thinking about the health test. You know, I started getting involved with other breeds and I knew that they did that sort of thing. So um, I started off with my local club. I got an eye specialist in and we started doing a health clinics. And then um, eventually I, you know, I brought the idea to BCA 
for to get you know involved with the um, the OFA's um, Chick Canine Health Information Center program, which is their database. Mm-hmm. And we um, we we introduced our first um, testing. We got involved with OFA with the trachea pilot study. We funded that. Our Bulldog Club of America Charitable Fund funded the trachea study. So for me. It's it's the the most important thing because you know we can look at it in an abstract way of you know breeding for the standard and healthy dog and breed you know and all on paper it looks fine but ultimately these are little lives that you're dealing with and the families that they'll eventually end up with so it's not just a matter of accruing um, you know a checklist it's you know maintaining a a, a, a family of dogs that are not going to be just tragic, you know, and I don't ever like to get a call from a pet owner or a companion home that says we've got a problem. And fortunately, for the most part, we don't. So, um, so, so just on, uh, just for appearances, I think I need to be one that kind of steps to the forefront and just because I think it's so important and, you know, pridefully proud that my dogs pretty much pass every health test I put them through. So the, the main ones are, cardiac um, patella which is their knees and trachea and then after that we go into thyroid um, elbows and hip x-rays for OFA and um, the two more recent bladder stone DNA tests through UC Davis and um, U of P are HUU and cystinuria type 3. And that's a DNA test. So when I offer a dog out for stud, I want to make sure that he's got everything passed. You know, the tests have to go through OFA, so they're in the database for anybody to look at. And, um, you know, just to give somebody who calls me to use my one of my dogs some confidence. And then when they go to sell puppies, that they have something, you know, to be proud of as they, they put their puppies in their new families, that they can feel good about doing a good job in breeding and that they paid attention to those things mm-hmm. with my own family of dogs it's usually just old age mm-hmm. um some of my breeding females if i don't spay them at a certain uh, time like if you know if they've had like two litters mm-hmm. it's not uncommon for my girls to get breast cancers yeah um but for the most part barring an accident which i've not lost a dog I can't remember last time I was letting dog to an accident. Um, it's really just pretty much old age. Now, if you know, there's really not been as much as people like to cite these sort of you know lifespan of a bulldog thing. There's really no no formal study that I'm aware of that's ever been done. Mm-hmm. And if they've done them, you know, again with a lot of the things that are going on, they don't contact the Bulldog Club of America for these questions. A lot of their sources for information is through vet hospitals, vet teaching schools. So, you know, you're going to be getting their, their main focus of all of this is on a very sick population of dogs. So it's skewed in that direction. And that's why we're fighting this so bad is because they're only really, and they'll fall to theirs. Um, it's the only dogs they see are the really terrible ones. They don't, you know, vets, vet students typically don't go to dog shows. A lot of them don't really know anything about the dog show world. And, um, and until they do, and a couple of groups have been starting to pull the vet students to dog shows as sort of like a field trip. And the reaction almost always is is pleasantly surprised at how positive the experience is for the vet students in, in an enlightening, you know, positive way. You know, like, gosh, we didn't realize that they were this healthy. Well, the truth of the matter is, is so many of these bulldogs don't have to go to the vet. You know, my dogs don't go to the vet hardly at all other than a shot, you know, and so they don't get seen. And, you know, a lot of us talk about how proud we are that we never have to go to the vet. Now we're in a situation, it's like, well, all right, so that's now gotten us into a little bit of a problem because the only dogs that see the vets are the only dogs that are being encompassed in the whole bulldog discussion is the sickest dogs that go to the vet all the time. So um, causes of death in bulldogs... You know, I don't even really know. I, you know, you kind of alluded to it as probably the same as any breed of dogs, just old age or cancers. Mm-hmm. There's not a leading cause of death in bulldogs to the point where we would have to like focus in, like we've got to zone in and figure this out. Um, as head of, of health committee, we would get 
notices from AKC from their charitable foundation. And they would pretty much ask us, you know, if you want to have us look into exploring some problems with your breed, let us know and we'll try to hook up a study for you. And in doing, you know, just casual surveys of, of people with their dogs that, you know, we've pretty much handled everything we think is a problem in the breed. We don't have any lurking diseases like some breeds have, you know, like Von Willebrands or, you know, copper toxicosis or Franconi syndrome or anything like that. It's just bulldog is what he is. It's an interesting thing with the hips. And when you talk about breeds like American bulldog or, you know, those mastiff derivative type bulldogs, completely Uh, different breed. Yes. A completely different kind of dog. The relationship to our bulldogs pretty much probably split somewhere in the 1820s or Uh earlier, maybe even in the 1700s. So, you know, by and large, it would almost be like comparing us to, to boxers or Dobermans at that point. You know, just the fact that they're called bulldogs is really the only, you know, Mm-hmm. It's not the same breed. So you're dealing with a completely different physiology. So hips is a tricky thing with bulldogs. Um, most most people who get their dogs x-rayed for hips are breeds that have, whose, whose dogs suffer with the hip dysplasia. In other words, it causes them severe pain, arthritis. Mm-hmm. You know, there's pain management involved. Um, we've seen bulldogs with degrees of hip dysplasia that show absolutely no symptoms of it. So if your dog's not limping for any reason, there's not an inclination for somebody to just arbitrarily go and get their dog's hip sex rate just for the sake of doing it. Until we have started introducing this, this ambassador for health program and people, because, you know, there's, there's an aspiration to get to the higher levels of our program. So they throw hips in and we're, you know, I never particularly bred for hips. So when I started doing my own dog's hips, I was very pleasantly surprised to see that we were grading fair and good, you know? Um, and that's just because I, I understand what soundness looks like right. from the outside. Mm-hmm. I understand what, um, you know, what a bad mover looks like. So, you know, the, the dog showing thing comes into the health thing because, you know, if they're not sound, you know, it's not just a matter of, of you know for show points you're not going to win if they're not sound but it's clearly a limp or a gimp or some sort of a an obscure or unbalanced motion that would make you then seek out your vet to do an x-ray to find out why and so you know the really good dogs are coming up with really decent hip scores now now that we're actually seeing more people go that extra route for the hip x-ray so i think you'll find that that super you know, low score, I think Bulldogs were the top of the hip dysplasia list. Mm-hmm. But I think we compared it to like golden retrievers in the same period of time. Something like 20,000 golden retriever x-rays versus like 59 Bulldog x-rays. Uh-huh. You know, it's just, it, there's just not enough data. Mm-hmm. And in, in just casual discussions, totally not anything casual. And just when I talk to a vet or somebody who, who's, you know, or I have friends who, you know, hey, while you're at your vet, ask them this, who's treating bulldogs for pain management for hips? And almost all of the vets say, that's not what we do with bulldogs. That's not a problem. There's no pain management for most bulldogs with hips. So, you know, it's just not the kind of breed that it's, it's not quite like your American bulldogs or your massives or full massives where a hip dysplasia is going to cause crippling arthritis and really knock a dog's life into a, a really bad situation and, mm-hmm. and again most of these good bulldogs now that we're starting to explore are coming up fine mm-hmm. there's not enough people do it right right you know except for when their dog's limping or has a problem go to the vet shoot an x-ray it's like oh by the way you have hip dysplasia so you know that's usually why more bad hip dogs were being x-rayed because they were looking for a problem. Now we're just doing it to confirm good health. And it's like, well, and lo and behold, we're finding that the good ones are actually scoring fine. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the breeds where it's a big problem with them have spent a lot of money researching that. And that is some of the, the data that's coming out of those studies, I think. Yeah. I know you kind of touched upon a little bit about, about it, but if you can expand even more, what is your, your, 
formula for success? It's just probably my complete and total commitment to this breed since I was a, you know, since I was a kid, you know, it's my whole life wraps around this breed. So I'm fully absorbed in all aspects between, you know, being a breeder, being a historian, that's part of like my, my hobby is the history of them with all my books and everything. Um, and, and just pure love for them. And, you know, it's just, a, it's just a commitment. And I really honor like the past a lot and the old breeders and just really just trying to keep this breed going. You know, there's, I don't know if there's really a formula. I mean, I think I have a really naturally good eye for, for quality, you know, I, and I understand the difference between, you know, good and bad. That's certainly helpful. And I just, I have a, a, a competitive nature, so I like to win. And you really can't win if your dogs aren't any good. And if your dogs aren't healthy, you're not going to win. You know, I come in from a different perspective because I didn't start fresh. I was just always, this has just always been the only life I've known. So um, where I can compare it to is um, we started breeding horse, Arabian horses about 10 years ago. So I, I kind of understand how the timeline works. Mm-hmm. And I think if I was going to, you know, if I had in front of me, you know, a young person or a young couple that wanted to get involved with showing, I would say, you know, before you even buy a dog, learn as much about you about them before you do, you know, like, I think a lot of people put the cart in front of the horse. It's like, right, here's our dog. Now we're going to start learning all about it. You know, we're going to breed her but we don't know a thing about bulldogs and you know, you waste a lot of time with that. And then when you finally realize that you'd started off all wrong, you've, you know, you've, you've wasted a lot of time and, you know, mistakes in dog breeding equal animals that have to deal with being a mistake, Mm -hmm. whether it's a selling decision that was bad or a breeding decision was bad. I mean, you can't look at them as, anything other than living creatures. And I don't think enough people stop and think about that. A lot of people ask me, you know, how did the one world dog world help you for the horse world? And I would have to say that because I knew so much about how the whole entire concept of animal exhibitions work and dog breeding works, it almost worked as if I came into Arabian horses having done research before I bought the horse. So, um, you know, obviously I had to learn more about the confirmation of the horses and the different bloodlines. And because I understand pedigrees and how they work, I think that helps me understand how to, how different horses came to be, how breedings might work where somebody who coming into dogs or horses with zero livestock or any husbandry experience really plays a lot of catch up. So I think with the horses, my dog experience was kind of like my, you know, research all you can before you get the horse. It's like, all right. So I researched just by doing it, how the dog shows work and how all those things work. So even more so as a reason to, before you would buy something is, you know, just immerse yourself in it with, you know, every intention of learning all you can and then start, exploring your purchase for your first female or male and if you really even want to breed them hopefully you decide to breed them and then if you do decide to breed them that you really just do it for the most positive you know forward-thinking improvement of the breed and not just you know for a cash cow or or anything like that you know the whole reason to breed is to improve the breed for the next generation not for any other reason yeah, and recognize that you will make mistakes. I mean, yeah. obviously, it's easy for me to say, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Um, I think one of the most important lessons you can make is by making a mistake. Just hopefully it's not the kind of mistake that devastates, you know, a dog's life or a person's life and easy to, to correct. But, um, yes, you know, so, yeah, just research all you can. And then, you know, again, at some point you do have to jump in. But hopefully you you have not just even it's a year of, you know, attending shows without a dog, mm-hmm. traveling to different kennels and seeing the different dogs, talking to people, figure out who you can 
have a relationship with. Yeah. You know, people will buy a dog from the first puppy that comes along and they realize, you know, I don't really like this breeder as a human being. Yeah. You know, which I just don't like you. And then that becomes, you know, a course of stress in the over the course of, you know, your time as a new dog exhibitor because you've got this, you know, this person you just don't really like, you know, maybe criticizing what you're doing, you're not doing it right. And, and a lot of fights can start because you didn't maybe take the time to not only explore for good breeders, but with breeders that you actually get along with that you can cultivate a relationship with as, you know, a teacher student kind of thing, or even just friendships. Mm -hmm. Well, as I kind of indicated before, so much of what's going on with all of this legislation is based on incomplete information. You know, they don't contact the major bulldog clubs for any input when they make these decisions. These clubs have been with members of combined of hundreds of years of experience with the breed. So the decisions that are being made with these governments are based on the sickest dogs that frequent the veterinarians and their vet schools. And there's a large, like I said, there's a large population of bulldogs who really never have to even see a vet. And we were always proud of that. But like I said, it's gotten us into trouble and that we're really a marginalized and often ignored group of breeders and dogs. You know, they don't they don't even want to think about us. It's like, no, we know what we're doing. We only want to talk about these poor sick dogs. We have to when we're here on the sidelines waving, say, wait a minute. No, no, don't forget us. But they do. So, you know, for some numbers, um, I don't have exact numbers, but I think the AKC registered in 2020 something like 14,000 bulldog litters that's not that's not puppies that's litters so that number goes up exponentially as you figure that a bulldog can have anywhere from one to 14 puppies and and in contrast there was only 87 bulldogs that completed their championship in that year so you know 28,000 plus 50,000 plus bulldogs and only 87 bulldogs were shown to their championship so I reference championships because it's the dogs that that show the breeders that show dogs and the dogs that are, are becoming the champions are the ones that are being bred to the standard, you know? So this whole talk of changing the standard to save the breed, you're not dealing with people that are even paying attention to the standard anyway. And for the people that are we're like, wait a minute, we're following the standard. Our bulldogs are beautiful. You know, the top winning dogs are the ones that are acing all these health tests. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's like the standard, the standard protects the breed. And so when over, it's probably even over 95% of all the bulldogs in the world are being bred by people who either have no knowledge of or are even interested in our standards. And proof of that also in the, this tidal wave of the off-color dogs. I mean, mm. they've overrun the bulldog populations. And I promise those breeders absolutely are not looking at standards. You know, if this is look at them, besides the color, you can't show them. The quality, you know, I could get into the standard and everything, but you just have to look at them. They're, they're not show quality. They're not standard bred. So the screaming about we've got to change the standard to change this suffering dog, it's like, no, you're, you're totally barking up the wrong tree with this thing. So all the changing of the standard and screaming about the standard is punished breeders like me who produce these superlative dogs who are outstanding physical specimen, passing all their health tests. You know, in the health, you know, in our health ambassador program, which is the BCA health program. And our, and, our, and our colleagues in England have a similar health scheme. Our very top scoring are also many of our top breed, history, you know, our, our breed's top winners. You know, Crufts winners, Westminster winners, national winners are also our platinum and diamond health scores. And that's the standard that's doing that. And our standard we're following was written in 1896, 1875 for the English people. And it's based, you know, ours is based on the English one. And it was written to protect the breed and to save it and to promote it. And if people, if more people actually bred towards that standard, we would see the improvement in the breed all the way around without changing the look that we all love so much. I mean, you, lengthening their snout is no guarantee for health. And then nobody's going to want them. And then the only people who are going to try to breed them are going to be people who aren't, <laughs> they're not going to be worrying about quality. It's just like, oh, well, let's just breed this bulldog to a beagle and say that it's healthier than a regular bulldog and charge a lot of money. And eventually, the, you know, the scams all fall by the wayside. 
but you know, to vilify the standard in this whole thing is just based on pure ignorance of just what our standard is. It's very distressing because we can't get our voices out. They won't listen to us with this. And it's just all you have to do is look at the numbers. You know, 50,000 bulldogs in the world and only 87 have 87 are champions with people who even are looking at a standard. You change a standard, those 50,000 breeders, they don't care about the standard anyway. So what's changing the standard going to do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Except for make things worse because you get rid of the populations of bulldogs that are proven to be healthy and viable and absolutely correct. Even in in your world, uh, breeders of different breeds are starting to even be a little biased towards bulldogs in a negative way and are kind of feeding into this. Like, I think the last Crufts that I paid attention to before this COVID nonsense, I don't think they had an English bulldog because it supposedly didn't pass their health standards. Do you know how he didn't pass? How? That beautiful dog from Italy? He had a healing, you know, he had like a hot spot on his, his left leg that was healing. And they said he had a skin problem. He was perfect in every other way. Breathing was great. Eyes are great. Skin was great. He had a healing hot spot on one leg, little quarter-sized spot. And they wouldn't let him go through. That's why he didn't go through. And that's, and that's, a, that's a joke. We know that the animal rights extremists are in it because bulldogs are just an easy target. But for all these people who are cutting up on bulldogs because they think their dogs are quote unquote safe, they're coming for them too. Yeah. The goal for the animal rights people is the end of all purebred dogs, right. you know, not just, well, just that it's easier to start with, you know, the brachiocephalics because they, they can kind of twist it into saying that the, the dogs can't breathe. And we know by from the Cambridge study, the Cambridge has a test for it that we're, we're, we've just started the pilot studies here, the BOAS test, the grading system for breathing. We can't wait to get it here because we know that our best dogs will pass and we can't wait to prove that. We can't wait. Mm -hmm. Just like with the trachea test. We didn't want it, you know, if, if our breed was suffering the dogs that we know now, I can't speak to the 50,000 or plus more breeders who have no concept of the Bulldog Club of America or the health testing or even care. But I wouldn't have pushed for my breed club to bring that here because I think that our good dogs would fail these tests. Because I know they'll pass. But we, we're, our, you, know, you want to talk about rare bulldogs. We have the rarest bulldogs, the health-tested, really good ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've got the best one. So getting back to who's pushing it, you know, you have your animal rights people, and they have, you know, it, it's one of those squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of thing. They're the noisiest. The politicians, and most politicians really don't know a single thing about dogs or anything. All they do is listen to the noise of the protest. And of course, with social media, they call it the Twitterverse and all that stuff. They're, they're very keyed into that, even though, you know, most people on Twitter, if they're not paid for to agitate, you know, it's just people with that kind of drive to push their narrative for whatever group they're representing. And, you know, truthfully, I have to be quite honest here. If my only view of bulldogs was the sickest ones that you know that we all know exist, I might feel the same way, you know. But they don't get to see, you know, the really good ones because again, we don't. We're not. Uh, we're not. Apparently, they're not enough of us. I think we decided there's less than like two thousand Bulldog Club of America members. Like I said, only 87 champions in one year versus, you know, maybe even as much as 100,000 bulldog puppies. I mean, that's just, like I said, marginalized doesn't even begin to cover, but we don't get the attention. And I, and I definitely see oversaturation as, as a problem and, and overbreeding and, and all of that, but mm -hmm. that isn't just for bulldogs, you know what I mean? I, no, the, the pup, the you know, people and dogs and the whole pet market and the whole pet industry, um, it, it, there's no patience for people. They want a puppy. They want it yesterday. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no explorer good breeder. It's like, no, I'm going to go to the paper and get this dog now. You know, they don't ask the questions, you know, that whole, you know, marketing campaign of whether it was rare. You know, there's another group of people that push for, 
you know, extremes in confirmation. You know, again, they blame the standard, but these dogs aren't what we we go for in the show ring. If they're oh those heavy wrinkles, that's not what we like. The bent legs. You know, our standard talks about those things. They shouldn't have any of those things. So, you know, there's so few people breeding the high quality dogs now that we're actually probably, you know, the show bulldogs actually might even be coming into into one of those endangered breeds groupings if you Mm -hmm. can separate the two. Um, Well, for the people breeding them for easy money. Yeah. You know, so... Getting back to that whole narrative of, you know, all bulldogs are unhealthy. They're irretrievably unhealthy. You know, you have to expect they're unhealthy. Without talking about the really healthy good ones, has totally eliminated all accountability from people who are breeding the really bad ones. So a person breeds just any horrible bulldog. I mean, I was at a veterinarian not too long ago, and they said, you know, we had this people bring in their male dog for breeding, and he collapsed because he couldn't breed during the process. It's like, yeah, but you bred him anyway, didn't you? Right? So here comes a whole litter of puppies who, if they're like dad's not going to be able to breathe with any exertion. Right? And then the whole thing perpetuates. So the answer in a lot of people's mind is like, well, it's a bulldog. It's not supposed to breathe. Or it's a bulldog. It's supposed to be crippled. If it's a bulldog, it's supposed to have horrible skin. If it's right. a bulldog, its eyes are supposed to be. None of that is true. But that, that drumbeat of that for the last 30 years, we have to change the standard because they're so unhealthy. It's like, no, if more of you bred towards the standard and tried for perfection with every litter you bred, Maybe we would start to solve this problem, but no, we have to breed them. And then if the person has an unhealthy one, well, you, you know, you knew when you bought the bone up, mm-hmm. that's what you wanted. You knew. And I've even had people call me. I know they're riddled with health problems, but I want one anyway. You know, so that doesn't make me accountable. Not that I would ever breed that way, but you know, and I do think that there are some people who like to have bulldogs because we have what we call the Munchausen by proxy owners that almost seem to like to go to the vet all the time with their sick bulldogs, even if they're not sick. They like to just seem like a good owner because they're in the vet all the time. Of course, the vets don't mind that. Well, and not all bulldogs have to sound like this, this breathing test to score zero. They can't have any sound mm-hmm. after a brisk three minute walk. And one of my, we, I participated in the recent, one of the recent, the first pilot study, I bought three dogs up there and my one puppy scored zero. You know, I was winded after walking him for three minutes fast. And he wow. hardly, he wasn't even panting. He wasn't even breathing him right. or fast. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, when, if you're in a bulldog show now, wasn't this so way 30 years ago or more, but if you go into a bulldog show, an all bulldog show, they usually held in a hotel ballroom. So it's quiet mm-hmm. and you'll have this ring full of, you know, anywhere from 12, you know, 12, 15, 20 to our national up to a hundred dogs in these big, huge rings. And, you know, the judge takes them around the big ring a couple of times. You don't hear anybody panting. And as a matter of fact, in the show ring, bulldogs pant. They're never going to win. Right. So, you know, that. so there's a whole lot of reasons, you know, you can maybe get, say, well, that the aesthetics are this and that. Well, the aesthetics of a show dog are what's keeping them healthy. You can't win if your dog's eyes aren't clear and bright and open. You're not going to win if your dog can't breathe. You're not going to win if his skin's terrible or his fear's sore, if he's limping. You know, all these things our standard covers is excellence. Ex- you know, it describes a big, wide nose. It describes vibrant mm-hmm. movement. Unrestrained, free, and vigorous is the word. You know, shiny skin, eyes that are open and round. I mean, you can't have entropian. You're just not going to win. So, you know, there's the standard again for them wanting to change it they're totally barking up the wrong tree you know it's interesting you mentioned anxiety you know people talk about heat with bulldogs but if you get an anxious bulldog and some of them can be Mm -hmm. they can work themselves into hyperventilation yes and that's what he even yeah even in a cooler temperature and it's really not that they can't breathe it's just that you know, if you've ever had an like an anxiety attack, which I used to suffer from that terrible, you know, you, you have trouble catching your breath. And bulldogs can get anxious a couple of, you know, not a couple of, but some of them have a wacky yeah. temperament where they they get stressed really quick. And then they can get themselves worked up and into trouble 
just because of that. But again, that would be part of, you know, showing at the standard. You, you can't show with a dog that's that anxious. They have to have, yeah. you know, they've got to be, they've got to be on their toes with everything. Mm-hmm. And then getting to this, and you reminded me of something that I, I didn't even think about, which I don't know why I didn't think about because it's so important. The, the mental image of bulldogs is fat and lazy and this and that. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, so many of these fat bulldogs who are treated like hothouse orchids and never allowed to do anything, right. you know, that, that just sets them up for all kinds of problems, not unlike people. There's nothing good about keeping your bulldog fat and lazy. And I think a lot of people, whether they're just too nervous about taking the dog out for a long, hot, you know, a nice long walk, but again, people have been dumb about it too. I, mean, I, I recently knew about somebody who's, you know, their son had a bulldog and it was like one of these 90 degree hot days in Chicago, mm-hmm. right? Where the sun bleed beaten down and they took him for a long walk. He didn't have any water on him. And the dog had a heat stroke on the way home. Well, a person could have a heat stroke on the way home in that condition. So, you know, there's got to be some, some common sense with people. But there's no reason why, you know, and again, as I said earlier in your broadcast, I grew up in New Jersey with no air conditioning. Mm-hmm. The dogs just acclimated to it. And, you know, one of the things I did, because, again, I just was so wound up and wanting to do so well in the show, you know, we I would take every dog from the mile around my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it was just, just what I did. And they got, you know, they were in shape. And that mm-hmm. made all the difference. It's just being in shape. So I think if a lot of people would stop keeping them so fat and lazy, mm-hmm. now obviously not if they're dealing with you know the trachea the size of a drinking tube or you know a drinking straw. You know they've got to have the apparatus to do it. But you know you, you see totally normal healthy puppies just you know almost wrecked as an older dog because they're not conditioned well. You know it's funny that you say that because um, you know bulldogs are funny with the weight because. You know, you can have two dogs from a distance look to be equal size, and you pick one up, yeah. and it feels like a feather. The next one will feel like, you know, yeah. a, 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 just a dead weight. And, you know, so much has to do with their physiology of muscle and mm-hmm. bone mass and yeah. that kind of thing. And, you know, sometimes a problem that, that people will have with veterinarians that either they're new or they don't have common sense or maybe, you know, there's just some vets that really never even owned dogs before they've decided to be a vet. But they'll go by, like, these dog food companies' weight charts. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they'll say, you know, this dog for this height at the shoulder should should weigh this and that. And, you know, we've seen people, like, have these skeletal bulldogs, and they'll say the vet just keeps saying he's so fat by the scale. It's like, yeah, well, you know, just look at him. He's a skeleton, you know. <laughs> they're, they're, and then, or he's too fat. If you can't see that he's too fat, you know, so, you know, again, it's, it, there's just some things that you just can't teach people if they're just don't, if they just don't have that kind of common sense and there's really no cure for that it's the unfortunate aspect that just some people in this world are not very smart okay. you know it's interesting when you mentioned c-sections and natural breeding and that kind of thing is um there's still a lot of people in europe that that free whelp their bulldogs it's just yes. what they do um america's a little bit different and it's really just kind of become the culture of it you know yes. and for some reason, a lot of these extremists lose sleep at night of the fact that the dogs are, you know, born by C-section. But any vet will tell you any dog at any time could need an emergency C-section. That's just nature. Humans, too. You know, what this baby's not coming out. We got to do a C-section. So um, C-sections became available for dogs in 1919. And bulldogs notoriously, even way back then, just... It wasn't necessarily for their confirmation. It's just they're kind of lazy whelpers. They're not real enthusiastic mothers. <laughs> right. And so, you know, unlike the Frenchies who really love to be mothers almost to, to a, a, a ridiculous degree. Huh. So, you know, if, if a technique was created to aid breeders and a group of people decide to utilize it to maximize, you know, the success for the litter... You know, so like for me, my vet is an hour away, you know, and unfortunately for me, a lot of times when the, the female is ready to have her babies, you know, it might be two in the morning. And so if I ran into trouble that we needed a C-section, I, you know, I would refuse to use an emergency clinic because that's just 
can be a disaster. So I've already got a female who's got some some stress from a stuck puppy or whatever. Hour drive, that's if my vet will meet me at, you know, two in the morning. And you have the risk of losing your puppies and your mother. So for a lot of breeders, and, you know, whether you want to fuss about it, whether we're lazy or not, what I don't understand why the obsession with the fact that the dogs are often born by C-section. It's just easier. And maybe that makes me lazy. Okay. But I don't have time in my life to sit and watch a female have puppies for, you know, which sometimes that can last 24 hours or more. You know, so I like this, you know, we schedule the C-sections and it, it's fast and easy. We're home and we're, it's all safe and good in a matter of time. It's convenient. It's available. And it shouldn't freak anybody out to the point where they've got to go nuts for the fact that, that people choose C-sections. And bulldogs aren't the only breed that are born by C-section. But we're, again, we're, fo- everybody's so focused on it. And as far as natural breedings, it's the only way we bred up until my parents died. And then, you know, it's just easier for me to do artificial. It's just easier. It's easier on everybody. It's a t- it saves me time. And we're providing, you know, it's husbandry. It's animal husbandry. And if I'm shipping semen, you know, that's part of it. You know, if I'm getting semen in, you do an artificial breeding. And it shouldn't make anybody lose any sleep at night that this is just the way of animal husbandry and animal breeding. It's just the way it is. So tell me, tell me, uh, isn't that the same with with you breeding horses that you guys? Yeah, we don't do any live cover yeah. with the Arabians. Yeah. Now, quarter horses, it's different. Or thoroughbreds, it's different. Quarter horses are, are almost always, well, not almost always, but they do a lot of frozen semen and ship semen and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just the, you know, the, it's technology getting things forward. It should Nobody should really yeah. be offended by it like they are. I don't know. That's just me because I'm an animal person. But, you know, but, but I think a lot of, can, you mentioned humanizing them. So there's this, you know, talking about <laughs> when they talk about animal rape, it's like, no, it's dog breeding. You know, it's not human. They're mm-hmm. not human. Even with the whole, and this is kind of going a little bit off track, when they talk about um, diversity. Uh-huh. All right. So, so, one of the complaints, in, and I read about a lot of the um, anti-purebred, anti-dog people, mm-hmm. is this whole notion of crossbreeding to save breeds and introduce diversity. And again, there's, there's people who are completely freaked out at the notion of any kind of line breeding. And they equate it, and they always point to, you know, the nobility of Europe with all of the weird blood diseases or deformities that they had or Mm -hmm. you know compare them somehow to people in the Appalachians that you know are cousins or whatever and yeah you know all of nature every every flock and herd and pride it's all line bred and inbred you know so and you can't tell me that they're not you can't tell me that the, the flock of birds going overhead that a father bird doesn't know that you know his mate right now is his granddaughter you know or his sister or something and you just you can't it's just the way of the world and you know there's benefits to doing family breeding particularly if you have a really strong healthy family of dogs like mine Mm -hmm. you know um you'd be smart about it and you do line breeding and as far as the breed and diversity you know um i think a lot of people say you need to outcross for diversity well you know the first bulldogs left england in the early part of 1900 and in looking at some of our top winning dogs again our top scoring health producers you know i traced two of them just randomly picked two and i stopped counting at you know at like 40 generations there's nothing related for hundreds you know for almost 100 years they have no common ancestors so you know when the argument comes up with you know a a pack of wolves it's like yeah well one wolf will leave the pack and create his own pack and go miles away. It's like, all right, well, bulldogs branched off and, you know, a, a significant population of them came to America that are completely unrelated to the bulldogs in Europe. You know, there's plenty of diversity. You don't have to outcross them to some weird breed for whatever crazy reason they have to quote unquote save them. They've been doing fine for centuries. They don't need some government or some extremists to save them. 
in the right hands. Now, I can't speak again. We're almost like dealing with two different breeds here. I can't speak to the massive amount of people with really no animal knowledge that are breeding them just haphazardly like they are. I'm talking dedicated, true, knowledgeable breeders with a really quality, healthy bloodline. So very again, you you I can hear the lack of education every time yeah. I hear this conversation. And the one thing people will say is like, oh, those dogs are so inbred, that's why they're so awful. Well, the truth of the matter is, is most of the really, really unhealthy bulldogs running around, these 20, 30, 50, 80,000 bulldogs, particularly the weird colors, they're not inbred at all. Yeah. They're just really poorly bred. Mm-hmm. You know, a good, strong, line-bred dog of dogs that are, you know, health test generation after generation after generation, there's nothing wrong with that dog being line-bred or if you want to call it inbred. That There's nothing bad about that system of breeding. It's the dogs you plug in. You know, some random outcrossed bulldog down the street that's a, a wreck or that comes in to rescue, mm-hmm. if you could find his pedigree at all, you're going to see a mishmash of dogs without a single relative in ages mm-hmm. and but so what how did that help him health wise the fact that he's all outcrossed like that or i can show you um you know one of my diamond health tested dogs that you know that is is more family bred because the family is strong and that you just the line is strong so again it's humanizing dogs again you deal with a pet population who when you try to mix dog and husbandry into family speak, it doesn't always mix. People no. aren't comfortable with notions of dog breeding and that kind of thing. And it's, it's just the crossing of the world. And, and let's face it that these, these, uh, animal rights people are, um, they have a, an agenda. And they, they sure do. And they know how to, mm-hmm. They're really, really good at how to steer an argument and get mm-hmm. ignorant people to follow their line of propaganda. Well, I was actually listening to um, Pure Dog Talk and uh, the other day, and it was a previous episode, maybe about a couple weeks ago or a month ago. They had a lady talking about some legislation in, in my home state of Oregon. I'm a Midwest transplant as well that these people are 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 actually starting to convince what we would be considered uh educated dog people they're starting to convince them on subjects and it's beginning to the point where it's it's start starting to trickle in in the confirmation world some of these these outlandish perspectives and so they're actually doing better than a lot of people think with their propaganda but then mm-hmm. if you if you do research these groups and i've done a, a, some very ancillary research you realize that these groups are really not about uh animal rights they're about pushing a political agenda that includes a lot of extremist points of view that i don't think a lot of people would necessarily agree with and if they do then then maybe those people shouldn't be involved in dogs to begin with in my opinion but i mean it's one of those things where you 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 just need to realize that that there is a bait and switch here they're making money and they're pushing a political agenda that has nothing to do with dogs and a lot of these groups that that fund each other and and cross promote each other are actually you know the ones that are 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 uh euthanizing dogs at a at an alarming rate Mm -hmm. yeah they want the elimination of all pets yes you know and so you know again it's you're right it's a big agenda and not many people i think a growing amount of people are becoming aware of it but um you know there's, there's a term called virtue signaling and and there's you know if you support these horrible bulldogs you must promote suffering well Mm -hmm. they don't they're not seeing they're not being allowed to see the full picture Mm. you know the reasons that we've talked about they just they're totally ignoring the good ones and focusing on the bad ones and 
you know, again, if you looked at it from purely that point of view of never having seen a healthy bulldog, you almost can't blame them, but you can't discount or marginalize these really good dogs. But they do. Well, I know a lot of puppy mills in Eastern Europe are probably pretty happy about some of this legislation in Europe. They're, they're I'll go bank. The, the really bad breeders yeah, and yeah. the horrible puppy mills will bank on all of it. And yeah. it almost makes me sometimes wonder if they realize that they're actually helping the really, really worst of the worst yeah, puppy mills and stuff. I, I don't know if they realize that they're actually helping them. And every now and then I think, you know, well, maybe they're in cahoots with each other, the way it's going to shake out. I would hate to think that they'd be that that devious, but, you know, you never know. Some of them just, I don't understand what their rationale is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I just don't understand. I understand, you know, wanting ethics for animals and, and not cruelty and things mm -hmm. to be done right, but, you know, to, to just be, like you said, extremist. They're so extreme. Right. But anyway, we can talk for a long time about that, but don't have to. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a touchy subject as well, but we, yeah, I think we've got our, got the point across. But and I actually think Holland had it first. Yes, yes. And then um, I think that... Um, a lot of those Nordic countries might follow in quicker than some of the other ones. Um, mm -hmm. And then other breeders in other parts of the country don't feel like it's as big of a problem for them. As far as here, um, you know, we're really fortunate. The AKC has a really excellent legislative department that really keeps us updated on everything. Um, for all kinds of, you know, breeding laws, everything. We know about everything. And then the NAIA, the National Animal Interest Alliance, also is, is an excellent ally for all dog people. And so, um, and the Bulldog Club of America has a, has a legislative committee that's very strong. And we're, you know, we, we're watching it. I, I'm hoping, and one of the, re another reason for our um, health ambassador program was when we started, I first started hearing rumblings of this 30 years ago. I said, you know, let's start building a defensive wall up. And we would just hope that, you know, in, in a legislative situation in a town or a community that, that introduced this, that common sense would come in and I could go in if it was in my own community. Go in there, here's all my dogs and other health tests. And I'm not sure why you think that it's cool for me to breed them when they pass every health test. You know, and just, you know, hopefully common sense would prevail. That's all we can hope for is that common sense prevail. Yeah. Northern Europe and other parts of Europe that that are looking at this legend is there any groups really at the forefront fighting this you know there's there's little sort of grassroots efforts I don't know um, again we have NAIA here I don't know if there's a, a, a counterpart in England or Europe or not mm -hmm. truthfully I don't know I, again I know of different little small groups of little armies trying to do their best to get their their message out but um they're they're not they're little they're little groups of people not well funded against this army you know like fighting the empire is what it feels like and we're the rebel the rebel force barely doing what we can and other breeds are about to to, to succumb, correct? Like French bulldogs and pugs. oh yeah, it'll, it's it's going to rumble down the line. I mean, even breeds like you wouldn't even consider. I think Great Danes are on on a right. cut list. I mean, it's no breed's going to be safe. Mm -hmm. There really won't be any safe breeds. I mean, you know, maybe the most, you know, I you know maybe like a Canaan dog, you know, or a which even a Senji they could probably pick on with their. Mm -hmm. um, with their liver problem, whatever it is that they have. Mm. But yeah, I don't think any breeds eventually, eventually I think they want rid of all purebred dogs because right. they consider it um, eugenics somehow. Well, you know, you, you know, again, we talked about some of the things that are, they're coming up in the conversation and you know, like outcrossing to make them better is just about the worst idea that I've ever heard because mm. we don't need to, we have the diversity, we have the healthy dogs. We have enough of them. Um, introducing other breeds can introduce problems that our breed just doesn't have, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and again, the standard's not the problem, it's the solution. If more people would breed excellence and not all this, this wacky stuff, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable that people 
what, what they'll breed just to make a litter of puppies and sell the puppies. And again, like so many things, people buy a puppy as if the puppy is a permanent state. You know, well, the puppy's only a puppy for the shortest amount of time in its lifetime. You know, it's a three-month span, and then all of a sudden you've got a dog. But by that time, the breeder doesn't answer your phone calls anymore, and then the dog ends up in a rescue because it's so unhealthy, and yada, yada, yada. And this whole notion of a longer snout being the ticket to health nirvana is is just, we know that's not true either. We know it's not true, and then we have the, the Cambridge test to kind of help us prove it. You know, there has to be just a stronger push for excellence. The dogs deserve that. You know, again, it, 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 the dog almost becomes a concept to a lot of people. It's like, oh, no, this is an animal that you're creating in life. And if more people would just be just more aware of not only what they're breeding, of what they're buying mm-hmm. and who they're buying it from. And just just stop with the whole notion that they're all irretrievably unhealthy and start switching the the whole vernacular over to no, there's nothing normal about an unhealthy bulldog that's not what we want <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah exactly. so you know the stronger push for excellence has to be you know the most and learn more you know get to know the bca and all of our education but you know we, we're, we're we're a 1500 member organization against the tidal wave of you know hundred thousand bulldogs being bred by people who have no concept of the breed or its history or the health potential or any of that so with any luck this broadcast reach people that say hey wait a minute maybe i want to look into buying a healthier bulldog or if i want to breed them maybe i want to start looking into breeding the healthiest and most correct look you know healthiest doesn't mean you have to totally change the way they look no let's just try to make the most beautiful bulldog we can find and make it the healthiest we can find because we know again the stats we have them our top winners are scoring highest on the health scheme things and that's for you know trachea cardiac knee hip elbow thyroid you know hopefully again hopefully we'll get this this breathing grading test and we'll probably have them all past that too uh, and me personally and and i know a lot of people maybe in your world may not have agree with me, but I, I don't mind uh, some of your offshoot bulldogs as long as they're healthy, but they're not English bulldogs. Well, well as long as they make the the, yeah. the determination and don't hijack the name of the breed, I mean, you know, if we can go back into their way back history, mm-hmm. you know, back in the 1400s, there was a treatise written on sporting dogs. It's written in Old English. It's hard to decipher, but it essentially says there was three types of bulldogs or yes. band dogs, they called them. There mm-hmm. was little ones, there was mid-sized ones, and there was big ones. Yeah. And then even when the dog show era started in the 1860s, the classes for bulldogs had the very small ones, the correct ones, which is our mid-sized, the bulldogs that we have. Mm-hmm. And then you had the, the super big mastiff derivatives. Mm-hmm. And they're not the same. You know, Frenchie's not That's a bulldog. Right. A bulldog's not an American bulldog. That's right. And and people need to stop trying to conflate the three. Yep. And, you know, one needs to stop saying that there's the, like, the, the, the sort of newfangled massive derivatives trying to claim that there's the original. It's like, no, not of the fighting, not, not of the pure bulldog. Our bloodlines, we know, go back to the original fighters because it's all documented. We have documentation of all of it, of the bloodlines, the written history of them. You know, the bigger American Bulldogs were a completely different offshoot. They came, you know, to America and they did farm work. You know, the Bulldogs that fought the Bulls, that wasn't, they weren't a farm dog. They were ridiculous. They wanted to just kill Bulls and they almost went extinct. So, you know, there just needs to be a mental recognition that to recreate the Bulldog of 1790 just isn't going to happen by mixing it with a Mastiff. (laughs) You know, they weren't big. They were little. Yeah. They weren't ever big, so the 30, 40, 50 pounders is all as big as they ever were. So when you get into these huge ones, these massive, it's a perfectly nice dog. An American Bulldog is a beautiful dog, right. but it's not It's not my Bulldog. It's a different Bulldog. It's a different dog. Yeah, yeah it's a different dog. Yep, yep. For sure, and I think that a lot of people, yeah, they, they try to lump everything together. like we mm-hmm. And they can't be my dogs better than yours. I mean, I've gotten into that tussle oh, with a lot of shit. the American Bulldog people. It's like, no, our Bulldog's better than yours. It's like, it's not better. It's just a different breed. It's like saying that your 
Doberman's better than my Afghan. You know, it's like, it's just a completely different dog. Joseph, Joseph, ooh, so I must, so I must, Mary, Mary, Joseph, Joseph.